Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is part two of our discussion on deliberate practice. And we had so much to say last time that we barely got through much of what we were talking about. So this is continuing on and building on that. Part two. Part two. So last episode, we had really talked about focusing on your learning curve being in the cases that aren't working and how to seek out a continued long-term advisor, consultant type relationship. And we got into some about really learning at your threshold, where the best place to challenge yourself at. It's not too difficult. It's not too easy. It's definitely that Goldilocks era. Just right. Just right. Today, we're going to focus a lot more on the best way to learn while you're there. So we had previously discussed you probably should record sessions and you should probably watch them. That <laughs> <laughs> Record them and watch them. And, and then learn from them. That's how we learn. But evidence shows that it's not just about passively learning. In fact, most learning shows that the best way to learn is to do. And so this really speaks against kind of a lot of the entire learning structure that goes around being a therapist. What do you mean by that? Because I think my favorite continuing education experiences are experiential, where we get to do stuff. That's exactly right. Those are active learning situations. I don't remember the exact statistics offhand, but we tend to remember about 10 to 15% of what we're told. We tend to remember about 20 to 25% of what we read. And we tend to remember about 80 to 90% of what we do. Wow, that's a huge difference. Really, in looking at the way that continuing education or even a lot of the education around being a therapist is, is it's sitting in a room and it's having somebody talk at you. Most people are technologically proficient enough to at least throw uh, PowerPoints or some sort of video for you to watch, but very few workshops, even the intensive ones, are not really having you sit and engage in the practice of what's being taught. And at least in some states, the legislation surrounding continuing education suggests that in order for it to count as continuing education, it needs to consist of a significant portion of lecture time, which doesn't allow for that practice time to actually exist. That doesn't seem to make much sense, Kurt. So there's probably some advocacy work that needs to be done in this area. But in building on this idea of deliberate practice, this might be where you have to go beyond just your continuing education requirements and to be able to practice doing the better skills 
before you actually implement them with clients. This is along those ideas of practice makes better. A few years ago, I ran a group for clinicians that was basically just called Let's Be Better Therapists. <laughs> and it was a group of therapists who came to my office once a week, and we did a lot of role plays of difficult things that were coming up in sessions for each of us. There became a discussion about two or three sessions in where people started complaining about, you know, this just feels a lot like grad school, doing role plays on stuff. And mm. I reflected back that this is really when most therapists kind of reach their peak effectiveness, and that it's by doing this deliberate practice of role plays that we can make the mistakes in here and we can critique each other in here on how to improve those situations. So that way you're not making those mistakes with clients. That makes sense. But I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with it. I mean, I look at having those hard conversations where you give the feedback like, whoa, why did you do that? Or maybe you could try this or those kinds of things. I think sometimes therapists, especially ones who haven't been supervisors, feel uncomfortable with that. So how do you help people get around that? The very, very short answer to that is get over it. That <laughs> in order to get better, you have to improve in areas that you're not as good as you could be. And mm. with that comes kind of the intention of I'm doing this to learn. Now, a lot of therapists are very risk averse that we like to do what we're good at and we like to be rewarded with being good at things. So we tend to shy away from things that we're not so good at. We might shy away from clients that might pose as more of a challenge. We will blame a diagnosis or a client's experience for being outside of our scope of practice just because it's too difficult. And we can really hang our hat on, well, I'm effective with a certain population. And while we do encourage you here at the Modern Therapist Survival Guide to seek out the clients that you will work best with, when you do end up with clients that are not necessarily your perfect ideal clients, that doesn't absolve you from being a good therapist for them as well. I agree to a point, Kurt. I think that we become the best at doing what we do best. And I think if we continually focus on what we're struggling with, we may get mired down in that. So for me, I believe that we need to really understand what we do well. And I think there's a legal and ethical responsibility to get better at the stuff we're not as good at, especially if it's with a client that we're working with. But I don't know that I agree that we have to be great therapists with all clients. And maybe that's not what you're saying. I'm pushing for therapists to be the most effective that they can be in regards to client outcomes. And not everybody who's listening here is going to necessarily have the authority to build a clientele that's entirely clients that they might work well with. These might be people working in agencies. These might be people working in traineeships where they're just assigned clients. And so this doesn't give everybody the permission to just not be good therapists across the board or just to focus in on specializing. But when you do have clients that end up in your office that you are working with, we don't have the ethical ability to just refer everybody out if we're not comfortable working with them. The challenge that I'm really laying out to our listeners, and this is consistent with deliberate practice and the research on good positive client outcomes, is that we want to be as good as possible. And the way that therapists set up their schedules really doesn't allow for a lot of time for this deliberate practice to happen. If we need to set aside time for us to be able to not only review our cases, but to reflect and practice new skills before our next session, a lot of therapists aren't going to set aside that time in order to do that. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people will just stuff their schedule full of clients, they'll stuff it full of all the other stuff, and so they don't have the time to do the deliberate practice. I think it's something where we want to be very aware of the type of practice we want. And I guess I kind of want to circle back to the referring out piece because in taking clients that we don't serve well or don't serve well yet, if we have a choice, it seems like we should be referring out if we're not good with them. Well, you're getting into scope of practice and scope of competency issues here. Having a specialty doesn't mean that we're not able to work with a wide variety of clients, that most therapists, regardless of your training program, are going to be pretty adept at working with clients presenting with anxiety issues, or they're going to be pretty adept at working with clients with depression issues. If your focus of your practice is on working with child abuse, or it's working on couples issues or intimacy issues, you still have a training and therefore a responsibility that is to be able to provide at least a general level practice that should work with most types of clients. Having a preference for a specific type of client doesn't mean that you are able to refer any clients who don't fit within that preference really away from your office, that you do have a competence to be able to work with a wide variety of clients. I see what you're saying, but I think there's a real responsibility to become clear on who you work best with and try to refer other people other places. I mean, I'm looking at a high-level basketball player probably has the athletic ability to also do baseball, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what he should do. Right. And in the context of deliberate practice, we're talking about improving an individual's performance through practice and through being able to do that. So if the basketball player in your example does want to play baseball, we're suggesting that he practices baseball in addition to it. So this isn't a matter of practice management so much as this is actually improving through the deliberate steps towards becoming a better therapist. Okay, I'll give it to you. In that kind of sense, what we're talking about is that going to a one-hour continuing education course where somebody talks for 45 or 50 minutes and answers questions is not going to help you necessarily improve in client outcomes that that particular talk is about. Now, I know that I've gone to several conferences just through being involved in my therapist association. And on those multi-day conferences, I've largely tried to shy away from the shorter workshops because I didn't feel that I was getting as much out of them. So I tend to sign up for the four or the six hour long workshops. And then I at least hope that it's going to reach a level of depth that I'm feeling that I can get something more out of those workshops. But even the research into learning and deliberate practice suggests that I'm not even getting the most out of those workshops by sitting there and just having information thrown at me for several hours. Well, especially if you're like tweeting or texting or making jokes or drawing pictures. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. Yes, I'll admit that. <laughs> but this is even where sometimes the multi-day intensives, unless you're actually practicing or doing stuff, then you're not getting the most out of that learning environment that you possibly could. And I recognize this in myself that in order for me to not be tweeting or making jokes or doing any of the other things that Katie knows that I do from time you're, to time. You're bored pretty easily, dude. I, I get bored pretty easily. <laughs> but in order to help 
take advantage of that recognition of myself is that whenever I'm at one of these workshops and there's an opportunity to volunteer to either be a client or be a practice therapist, I generally try to volunteer to be in those positions because A, it makes me pay attention and B, it gives me that active learning experience in those situations. And C, it puts you in the spotlight, which you love. I do love the spotlight. (laughs) So this is where my basic EMDR training, I volunteered to be the client for all of these reasons, other than the being in the spotlight sort of thing. But I wanted to really experience from the smartest person in the room what it's like to be on the receiving end of treatment. It gave me such a better intensive version of learning than anybody else in the room because I'm experiencing it and I get to talk about and share in front of everybody what my experience of each of those steps through that treatment protocol was. I feel like I got so much more out of it by participating than actually just receiving the the visual or being able to watch the demonstration. I agree. I oftentimes will also volunteer for a role play or jump in. And I think my reason is probably more because I like being in the spotlight as well. But I do find that I get a lot more out of actively engaging in the learning versus sitting back and listening. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Now, the one exception to this type of learning research on continuing education is that people do actually respond in law and ethics workshops to being told things, but that's because it's nice, concrete sort of interpretations of things. But when it comes to clinical skills, this is why Katie and I inform our continuing education courses. And here's a shameless plug for the (laughs) stuff that you can find on our website, mtsgpodcast.com, of the live events that are coming up. But why we design our workshops to be more active is because not only do you get to walk away with something that's hopefully practical for you and your clients, but that you're better learning from it because you're participating in it. Yes. And it's a lot more fun. And it's more fun, which is also supported in the because you're doing it. You're not just being talked at. Now, when you combine this with all of the other learning aspects that we've covered in this episode and our previous episode, is this then provides an opportunity for a feedback loop system that the more that we look at what's in those blind spots, the better that we have an opportunity to capture that on a video recording, to be able to go back and review that, to be able to challenge ourselves right at the level that we need to learn at 
to be able to practice that with other people, to be able to learn in situations where we're doing things rather than hearing things or seeing somebody else talk about these things, we're then better improving ourselves and improving client outcomes by doing this. So not all continuing education or not all learning that we do as clinicians is going to be experiential. Like you said, there's some laws or regulations or whatever that are not allowing for that type of instruction. And, and sometimes we'll get you know, random articles sent our way. Sometimes we'll get uh, some learning in different ways. How do we make our experience better and how do we fold it in? How do we make it more deliberate, even if it's not? And this comes back to if you really want to improve, then it's a resource-intensive process that you have to go beyond the basics of what your licensing board might say. You might have to go beyond the basics of what your graduate program might say because those are the basics because that's the minimally acceptable competence that the licensing boards or the graduate programs are going to say one needs to do in order to move forward with their career. Now, if you're fine being average, that's the bare minimum. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that are probably fine being average, Kurt. (laughs) If you want to be good, if you want to be above average, if you want to hold a mastery of something, if you want to hold yourself accountable by saying that you specialize in something, and this goes back to our specialization episode, if you're holding yourself out to a higher level of accountability, you have an obligation to actually be better at what you're doing. And this is the best way to improve your skills in order to be better. So you said it was resource intensive. You said you have to do more than what's minimally acceptable. But what could that look like? Because too often, there's not those things available. Granted, shameless plug, therapy reimagined, we've got some stuff for you. But not everybody has access to that. Not everybody has these cool experiential type trainings. What can they do? So this is even just the deliberate practice of reviewing things with people who do hold those skills. And last time I checked, this is the 21st century. We can connect with people all over the world through some really cool technological things. And one person who's part of this whole research on client outcomes and improving ourselves that we haven't really mentioned before, but is really fitting within this Anders Ericsson and Scott Miller type thing is a psychologist in the Seattle area named Tony Rosemanier. He presented at the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists conference a couple of years ago showing how he had worked in real time with a client and a consultant. He had two live feed video cameras set up in session, one set on him, one set on the client, and a consultant on another part of the world was watching in real time and giving him suggestions as a licensed psychologist on what to do differently during the session with the client. That sounds really intense. Again, this is intensive resourcing type situations in order to improve. And during that discussion, what he talked about was this is a client that he had a few sessions beforehand with and that he was receiving feedback from her that this was not improving. He had sought out a long-term consultant in somebody who was helping him to review his practice and had asked for advice and they had come up with a situation. The client agreed to it 
to record them both. And it was funny at times because even the client in the sessions was like, hey, what's, what's the other guy suggesting that you do right now? Because what you're doing isn't working. <laughs> and so he would check back over to his screen and then he would get some sort of advice and he would say, well, this other guy suggests that we talk about this. And they would jump into that part of the conversation. You could see the client's response to both the technology and to Tony in the room. She was more relaxed. She was getting deeper into her feelings about her particular traumas and it worked. Now, I don't know that Tony would have taught us something that didn't show some evidence of working, but this is something where in early training sites, this was the one-way mirror where feedback could be sent in messages into the room, but we're not tied to needing the one-way mirror rooms all over the world now, that we have the technology now to be able to look at things from a very trusted consultant who might be on the other side of the world. I like that. I can see how effective it would be, but it also seems pretty expensive. And in the episode that we had with Ben Caldwell, this is a profession that we're trying to make more approachable. And so is there a lower cost option here? Like how do we, if we're not able to afford all of this technology, we can't access somebody across the world, what can we do? How can we, how can we incorporate deliberate practice, active learning principles, if we don't have that capability. And this is where you're able to record sessions on any technologically available HIPAA compliant sort of technologies. Don't record with your iPhone in the room and then carry that around for a couple of weeks until you see your consulting group again, but protect those files, do it in a, in a legal and ethical way, but you don't need the fancy real-time technology. You don't need several cameras set up in every single room. But this does come back to have consulting groups. If you are able to continue to receive supervision, no matter what point in your career that you are, to be vulnerable to the constructive criticisms of other people looking at your work, you will continue to improve. It doesn't have to be thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in order to continue to improve. It can be done in a way that is more cost-friendly, but the key to this is that you have to be willing to go there in order to improve. So I'm thinking in a consulting group, you can do role plays. You can find a lower-cost camera and put a mirror so you can see both you and the client. I mean, I think there's, there's different ways that you can do this. It's more cost-friendly, but what I'm really hearing is that you do something. Yes, you do. And one of the ideas that Katie and I have floated, and this is probably one of the projects that we'll get started on a little bit later this year, is offering these types of consultations in order to improve people's clinical skills. And continue to check out our website and updates on that or look at any of our social media. And we'll broadcast this as it does become something that we develop. But if you really are wanting to improve, you have to be able to get feedback from somebody who is not you. And you have to be able to kind of get out of your own headspace in order to have some feedback that you can be vulnerable to. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. 
I think it's really about that vulnerability because I think too often I've even seen it in the Facebook groups. People will come, they'll vulnerably put forward something that they're struggling with. And there's people that are cheerleaders and are very excited and like, oh, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. It's probably the client, you know, that kind of stuff. And granted, I'm talking about when they're not putting identifying information in a Facebook group. But I think there's also people that will start attacking other people. And it's not really a safe space. They'll say like, oh, I can't believe you did that, or that's unethical. Or, you know, and, and people will get into this competitive space of really trying to put down somebody who's honestly seeking feedback or support from their perceived peer group. And so I think the distinction that, that Kurt and I are making is that you find somebody who is safe, whose opinion you do trust, and being able to vulnerably talk to them about the things you're struggling with so that you can get positive feedback that you can deliberately practice. Because if you're worried that you're going to be trashed by the rest of the therapists, that's really not deliberate practice. That's kind of scary. Right. And there are keyboard trolls, people on the internet who will tear you down just because that anonymity, and even if you're logged in with your Facebook account, allows them to do that. And this does go to where some of this practice does have to be in real time and to Mm -hmm. be reflected with other people, which you can't do through typing up a cryptic Facebook case conceptualization in four to eight sentences. So you do need to devote the time in order to improve yourself. And this is even going into some of this extra stuff might be stuff that you have to practice completely on your own and set up a video camera of yourself, just recording things of how you might work things out with a client. You wouldn't expect an expert in any other profession to not be devoting time outside of work in order to improve in their field. But I think a lot of people do the bare minimum. So I think this is something where we are asking people to be better than the the general population. Right. And this harkens back again to Ben Caldwell's episode with us is that this is part of what's contributing to the therapy field's being kind of glossed over by the general public is that people who are therapists are too comfortable being average. And in fact, they get it wrong that they're average in the first place. They (laughs) often overshoot how competent that they actually are. And that's getting in our way of being able to better serve clients, being able to fill our practices, and really from even the, the business standpoint of being able to justify and raise fees to charge what we feel that we're worth. I think that there's a couple of pieces to this. And of course, it sounds so funny me saying like, we need to be our best with me with my my horse uh, laryngitis voice. But I think what I sense a lot from the therapists who I work with, my colleagues, is that there's this mixed bag. And I think there's folks who want to charge more money because they think they're amazing. And I think there's people who really doubt themselves and feel hopeless to get better. So I think this actually addresses both. I think being able to really improve and be able to have a a mechanism to become a better therapist that is more than sitting in lectures and getting a certification, but actually feeling stronger outcomes with your clients can help both the people who are underestimating themselves and the people who are overestimating themselves. The common theme to either of those is being vulnerable to that feedback. There's a lot of discussion in the therapist community of needing to do our own work. 
Part of that is as a client and being able to work through your own issues. But a lot of that is through your continued development of clinical skills and the way that you respond in the room. And that's not just through reading books. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. And a lot of that has to be in how you interact with clients, how you interact with other people. And the best way to get that kind of feedback is to ask for that kind of feedback. I think it can be hard to ask for that feedback, but I'm really getting that that's the most important thing you can do to become a better therapist. Right. And I've mentioned in one of our previous episodes about my experiences of even attending Scott Miller's workshops at previous Evolution of Psychotherapy conferences, and that the first time that he was like, yeah, you, you probably overestimate yourselves and your clients are probably the best judge of how you're doing. And I thought that he was crazy. <laughs> and so I went back and I actually started using some of the session feedback materials that he had provided after the second time I saw him, but I had to get over myself and my own response to that. I think that's so critical is that even those of us who have embraced this idea, it wasn't easy for us either. I know for myself, I haven't incorporated all of the deliberate practice things and I'm continuing to add to it. But I think I find that even just being able to really thoughtfully talk through a book I've read or sort through something with a colleague helps my learning so much more. So it's whatever stage you're at, there's a way that you can be more active in your learning and more deliberate in your practice. Right. I'm a big fan in my supervision of talking about the parallel processes or some of the dynamics that are happening in what's our relationship at the time. And this even goes to things like our podcast here in that we want to hear your feedback about what you like and what you don't like about our show. So that way we can continue to improve and make things better for you. For sure. And there's also kind of a part of this is we're now approaching about 40 episodes here where it's kind of lonely here in talking just to each other. And, you know, we'll throw out stuff on our social media and, we might get a few likes and Katie's mom's pretty fantastic about liking everything, but we want to hear from the rest of you as well. And then that allows us to continue to improve what we're doing. If there's things that you love, yes, we love hearing about that. And we're going to continue to do things that we have been doing well. But if there's things that you want us to talk about, or there's things that you think that we should address, we want to hear that too. And you can do that through any of our social media. You can go to our website, mtsgpodcast.com, and provide us with feedback so that way we can incorporate that into how we go about approaching our show. Yes, and I think it's something where it can be overwhelming to take that. This is us practicing what we preach. You know, we want to make sure that we've opened a space that you can give us positive and negative feedback. And Yes, I know I should not be doing a podcast episode with laryngitis, but we were so excited to talk about this. We couldn't wait. But other than that, <laughs> we're wanting feedback because we want to make sure that what we're providing to you is helpful and that the way that we're presenting the material that we're presenting is useful to you. And so as we continue to be deliberate about our podcast, we also want to be in relationship with you. We've already shamelessly plugged all of our other events. So... <laughs> You, the best way to give us feedback is probably on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. Any of the episodes that we have, 
you can click on the show notes. There's an opportunity there on the website to provide feedback for us. If for whatever reason, it's easier to tweet at us or go to our Facebook page and provide us that feedback, we'll check out there as well. And you can also come into our Facebook group where we continue the conversation and talk about what we've been talking about in the episodes or other random hashtag modern therapist problems that we think about. So we encourage, we want your feedback. We want to hear what you like. We want to hear what you want us to see improve on. And if it's within our power, we will definitely improve that. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.